Okie dokie. Oh. A podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts. This is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 108. Last week we saw where one of the scribes came up to Jesus and asked him the very poignant question of which commandment is the most important of all. And Jesus refers back to the Shema in Deuteronomy about hearing that the Lord is one. Um, And then... He actually adds a little phrase in loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength. He adds mind. And we we talked about how this Shema commandment kind of builds on itself where it's like loving God with your your very essence and being and everything that makes you, you as a person. But then the part that he added was mind. Uh, and we reflected on why he would add that to show he's talking about understanding all of this loving God and knowing who he is and knowing his oneness means nothing if it cannot result in understanding uh, in your life and in your actions. Uh, and it was, I thought that was a very convicting thing for him to add. And the, the scribe agreed with him and it was yeah. really cool to see Jesus kind of affirm this scribe and say that you're not far off from the kingdom. So it's just one of probably many examples on how a lot of Jesus's opposition maybe were closer to uh, agreeing and supporting him than we might think. Yeah. And we, we need to give room for that. Uh, and then we ended up with uh, Pharisees coming and asking him, what do they think about the Christ and Jesus goes on this referencing of Psalms about the son of David aspect of the Messiah and kind of refuting how whenever they say that the Messiah is going to be a son of David, why in the Psalms David calls him Lord. Uh, it would be weird for uh, David to call his son Lord or Master and Jesus was kind of showing that it's it's something different than that and they didn't have a response. They uh, they couldn't refute that kind of convicting rhetorical question for them to think about the lineage of Messiah. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. We I, we were trying to get across that idea that look, we read this, and I don't know. I think honestly, most people read it and they're just like, yeah, that one's no big deal. You know, you just sort of read past it. So we were trying to figure out why would that have been so impactful for them in that time. Now, you may or may not disagree with what we talked about, but that was the big point is, look, this was a big deal to them. He had to be saying something important, something that really got to them, shut them up, whatever you want to call it. So that, yeah, that, that was good. That was good. Well, uh, Jesus isn't done. He's He's got a lot more to say, but it's hopefully... We're heading into some things that aren't quite as deep or not quite so much to talk about as we did before. And also, just to mention this, we're about to enter, it's it's going to take us a bit, but we're getting close to a place where Jesus does something that often gets referred to as the seven woes. And 
Because of that, there's a little part of Luke, back in Luke chapter 11, so this was quite a while ago, that we're going to be pulling in little pieces along the way. Just warning you, you may think, well, that seems out of place or whatever. It's just the people who try to put the, the Gospels in some sort of chronological order, there's a lot of controversy or just disagreement all around that. So this is where they ended up for us. If you don't like it, you know, whatever, put them where you want. But anyway, let's go ahead. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Uh, This lines up with Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, and Luke chapter 20, verses 45 to 47. And right here off the top, we're going to include some things from back in Luke 11, and it's Luke 11, verse 43, and verses 45 to 46. Now, we're not going to end up reading any of those while we're doing this, I'm going to read from Matthew, but I just want you to know they're there, and that's how we're picking them up, and you'll see how they sort of fit in uh, as we go. So here we go, Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses's seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Now, actually, Mark, he adds one strange little bit. He kind of does the same thing, really short version. But he adds right at the end, they will receive the greater condemnation. So, okay, let's hold on to that. That doesn't sound good. But what do we got here? I read the Matthew version because it was a lot longer, had a lot more detail. Luke and Mark, uh, it's just much shorter. Now, these could be, uh, how do I say this? Remember how I included some of these verses from Luke chapter 11? And and Luke, he's he's got some woe stuff in there. That's why it gets pulled in here. So here's the thing. It could be that these are two completely separate instances. Jesus pronounces some woes way back in the story. He pronounces some later in the story. Or it could be, you know, Luke's place, Luke's placement, well, it could be the correct one. And where we see it here in Matthew and Mark, yeah, that's kind of out of place. Or vice versa. Maybe Luke got it wrong. Whatever. We, we don't really know. That's why we're just adding them in here as parallels. But and I guess I should say it, we're kind of treating them as if they're a single event, just because that makes sense to us. But we've seen other places where that was not the case, so who knows? Jesus is here, and he's speaking to the crowds, and he's warning them to beware the scribes and Pharisees. Now, at first, you know, I'm just going to say American church people, whatever, that's no big deal. I mean, yeah, everybody thinks the Pharisees are the bad guys, generally speaking, so that's no big deal. But look at how he does it. He says, first, do and observe what they tell you. Well, wait a second. I thought that was why we hated them. 
<laughs> right? But he also explains why. He says, you know what? For your part, it's good for you to do and observe what they tell you because they are currently the ones who are sitting in Moses's seat. And this is, okay, n- nobody's talking about a physical seat. I know that you will see images on the net, different synagogues, different places, whatever, where they have uh, something that represents Moses' seat and all that. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is simply referring to the metaphorical seat of Moses, which is now, I mean, we just put a name on it. It's the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. So they are the ones that are responsible. They are the ones that have the God-given authority to make judgments concerning the law, all of that kind of thing. In fact, when he says they sit in Moses' seat, it's really just an idiom for they have the rightful authority. They're the ones making judgments. So this is very interesting. Whether a leader is good or bad, we need to remember that all authority comes from God. And, ooh, Americans don't like that. They don't like it. And and, and what have we heard over the last... Uh, couple of elections and all that kind of stuff, the new popular phrase is, he's not my president, (laughs) right? Well, actually, yes, he is. And if if you're looking at it from a scriptural perspective, and I think Jesus is, he's kind of endorsing this right here, even if you think that they're a bad leader, well, all authority comes from God, and they should be at least respected. So that's a hard thing. But Jesus, I'm I'm not the one saying this. Jesus is the one saying it. We need to take it seriously. And, okay, is it it true that there are limits? Like, if, if that authority is demanding that you do something that goes against God, can you push back? Well, by all means. I mean, you could think about... Gosh, I don't know. Uh, maybe the Daniel story. That's a good one. Or Jesus himself uh, in some cases, right? So there are limits, but but the basic rule, the basic understanding, the basic duty as a Christian is, you know what? You need to respect authority because it comes from God, even when you think it's bad or even if it is objectively bad or whatever, but don't let them push you to do things that are against God's rules. That's all. All right. Jesus himself, you know, he's faithfully obedient. And I don't know, put a number on it, Samuel. What do you think? 99.9? Is that enough? Let's add another decimal. Well, 0.99. Yeah. And and to human authorities, it's it's slightly less because he did push back on occasion. So that's, I'm sorry, I I should have been more clear when I asked. When he's, when we're talking about Jesus being faithful to human authorities, Mm -hmm. okay, call it 99.9% of the time. Because, you know, we did see the occasional pushback. But to God, okay, yeah, he's faithfully obedient. How much, Samuel? 100. 100%. And for all those people who love to say things like 110% or whatever, you, I get it. I know what you're saying. You're trying to emphasize, exaggerate, whatever. But, oh, my goodness, you realize that that's impossible, right? Okay, got that out of my system. Even Paul feels the same. And I want you to I want you to look at something. This is in Romans chapter thirteen, verses one and two. Samuel, read it for us. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, 
and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, I just like the, the verses we're actually covering right now, I think people read this and have one of two responses. Well, surely he didn't mean in this situation or that situation, you know, right? They just kind of go, well, mm. surely he couldn't mean that. But I, and okay, again, we've admitted occasionally, yeah, that could be true. But I think that this covers a whole heck of a lot more situations than people are willing to give it credit for. And in case Jesus isn't enough for you and Paul isn't enough for you, let's do one more. Peter thinks it too. Samuel, read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Yeah. Now, some people look at that and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You can see that they're punishing evil and praising good. They must be good leaders. Okay. But we've already shown (laughs) in Jesus and Paul's case, that is not true at all. Just... I know that this is a really hard saying, but we don't get to pick and choose the parts of Scripture that we like and don't like. And I know that this isn't just a solid black and white. Yeah, there's a little bit of gray in there. I'm merely suggesting that from Jesus and Paul's, and I would even say Peter's perspective too, a whole bunch more is in fact black and white than we are often willing to let it be. And we don't save those gray areas for when God's will, God's instructions, God's rules, etc., are actually being challenged. So, and you know what? What are people going to do, Samuel? Who, who are they going to look to in history when they go, really, I'm supposed to be subject to the governing authorities? What about, fill in the blank, Samuel? Uh, oh, no, I'm blanking. <laughs> Worst guy in human history ever, leading countries... Heil. Bro, I'm, I'm smooth brain right now. <laughs> Hitler. Oh. That's everybody's yeah. favorite example, right? That guy. Well, what about Hitler? Are we supposed to be subject to... Okay, now this is going to be hard to hear. The simple answer is yes, but Hitler, being as bad as he was, obviously raised a lot more gray area. Right? When it was, hey, why don't you stick these people on a train while we ship them off to be killed? Okay. Maybe at that point you want to resist the authority a little bit, right? I mm-hmm. get that. But we, we just, just understand what's being said. There are going to be authorities in your life that you do not like, that you do not trust, that you may think are bad or may even be objectively bad, as we said, And it is still reasonable for you to be obedient. And that's a hard thing to hear. But we got to do it. So let's keep going. What is so bad about these scribes and Pharisees? Forget Hitler. Forget, you know, whatever you think in your country, your whatever. They did not practice what they preached. Now, This is cool because this is our modern understanding of hypocrisy. What do we think that hypocrisy usually means? What's the the sense in Scripture, Samuel? Uh, It's an actor. Yeah, And, and you can see the connection, but here, this really fits our modern view of hypocrisy. You're not doing what you say to do or whatever, right? So God's Torah, in the ideal, 
actually is not burdensome. And I know that sounds weird to us because we look back at the Old Testament law and we're like, whoa, who could ever live like that? But it is, in fact, the very source of freedom and liberty, which is very ironic, but it's true. Now, some of the legal decisions and observance details added by the leaders back here in Israel, you know, first century and prior, some of those were actually burdensome. Some might even call them backbreaking. Some might call them soul-crushing. The point is, they were the exact opposite of Torah. Somehow they were using Torah, twisting Torah, and bringing, laying burdens on people. It's a bad thing. And if uh, you wanted to, you want to read some similar account, you could go back to 1 Kings chapter 12 and read about what Rehoboam did to the house of Joseph. But that's a side story. We're not going to cover that here. But remember, Jesus told them to obey. Okay, unlike what we saw with the house of Joseph, if you went back to 1 Kings 12. Anyway, these leaders were unwilling to follow all that they themselves had either decided or added or whatever you want to call it. And this was most probably obvious in secret, right? If you could get a peek behind the scenes of their secret lives, you would see it very clearly. But see, here's the beauty. God sees. Can you hide anything from God, Samuel? I don't believe you can. No, you just can't. No matter what it is you think you're getting away with, and most often we've got in our heads Nobody is seeing seeing me right now, and they're thinking about people. God always sees every single second, moment, thought, action, fill in the back. He's always there. As if it wasn't enough that these guys were, you know, bringing up these burdensome uh, rules, whatever, they were also parading around like strutting peacocks. Now, this is the part where hypocrisy, hypocrites, this is the actor part. They wanted to be seen for their outer dressing, their public honor, special attention, all that kind of stuff when they were in public. And again, that's the Bible's understanding of hypocrisy. Everyone wore phylacteries. Another name for that is the tefillin, all right? And everyone wore fringes. Uh, Another name for that is the tzitzit. And when I say everyone, even Jesus, even his disciples— everyone. So that wasn't the problem. The problem is that these guys were, you know, pimping their ride. They were making their phylacteries <laughs> broad. They were making their fringes long, and right? Anything to look different, look special. That was the problem. So Mark and Luke, they add that they're going to receive a greater condemnation because of this. Now, Samuel, would you like to take a guess why? Probably has something to do with uh, bringing down the lowly even lower than they already are. Oh, yeah, that's good. Here's, I'm going to try to break it down into like modern language. They have been given a greater uh, responsibility, and because of that, they had the potential for greater what? I mean... If you think about it in the positive sense, if they use their responsibility well, it's going to bring people enlightenment and obedience in their lives. But if they abuse that, it's going to cause pain and suffering and hardship for the people that they're supposed to be guiding. Excellent. That's exactly it. Greater responsibility could lead to 
greater reward. Or greater responsibility could lead to greater judgment. And the problem is that they have used it to bring pain, suffering, injustice. You can fill in whatever word you want there. And so instead of getting greater reward, they were going to get greater judgment. Here's a a, a more simple example of this, and maybe something that we can more easily relate to in our normal everyday lives, church lives, whatever. Uh, Samuel, read James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Yeah, they have a greater responsibility, and therefore they've got greater potential for either reward or judgment. It's a tough thing. And so, you know what? Take a moment. Here we are doing this podcast, laying this stuff out there. We are volunteering for greater judgment if we're not doing a good job. Do you understand that? This is a big, big deal. And so as you listen and as you think about you know, the things that we're teaching, know that we are taking this as serious as a heart attack. Know that... If it leads you to a place of teaching others and all that kind of stuff, you're taking on a greater responsibility. It is a good thing, but it's not something that should be taken lightly. See, much of what we see listed here, we read it and we just think it it kind of seems silly. It's just a bunch of look-at-me behavior. Uh, Mark and Luke add one important item that we didn't see when we read Matthew, and it's this. They devour widows' houses. And so we can take that and, and know that, okay, it isn't just the silly behavior, the hypocritical actor-like behavior. They're also actively doing things that are unjust and causing suffering, etc. They were enriching themselves off of the very ones that they were supposed to care for. They didn't just say devouring people's houses. They were devouring widows' houses, And, I mean, Samuel, go back to the book of Exodus. What was some of the primary objective coming out of slavery in Egypt? What did God want for his people Israel? They were supposed to care for who? The the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Yeah, it's a big deal. And these, the actual leaders in and among Israel, were not doing that thing, the primary objective. Now, this isn't even an exhaustive list. It's, it's only supposed to be representative. But in this one item alone, the devouring widow's houses, we can see that they were willing to do the worst of the worst, taking advantage of widows. I mean, however bad you might think that is today, this was, this was horrible back then. Like I said, it's the worst of the worst. And it represented the exact opposite of God in every way. Yeah, it's just, it's hard for me to get into the mind, the minds of those leaders who are so familiar with the text and the commandments of God. And well, pardon me, maybe feels like it's a stretch to say the heart of God, but would they be experiencing any kind of conviction or? guilt or shame for taking advantage of someone so helpless like a like a widow especially in first century Jewish culture that was patriarchal right. where you know women 
wives depended greatly on men to to take care of them, protect them. Yeah, completely um, dependent. So are are we to like treat these people as similar as like Pharaoh, like their hearts are hard or they've got ulterior motives um but you know they've got the nagging sense of you could say god's spirit attached to the text like reminding them of what actually is the right way it's just this is hard for me to relate to these people yeah well and i think what you asked could we think that they like pharaoh had hard hearts about well yeah i i think that's a reasonable potential yeah maybe they did we could also look and say well they were they were actually self-deceived. They didn't even see this truth about themselves. They thought that they were okay. Why? How? Because, like you talked about, they were looking at the text, but they were finding ways to justify their behavior. And we do this to ourselves all the time. And the trick is, this is so cool, if you see it in someone else... It's like a glaring, blinking, gigantic billboard sign. It's so obvious. But to see it in ourselves, sometimes it seems nearly impossible. But, yeah, I, I, it, it is hard to relate to. But I'm just going to say, I would bet you that if people spend enough time with me, I, now I don't know if they would you know, compare me to devouring widows' houses or whatever, <laughs> okay, hopefully not. But I bet you that people would spend enough time with me and they'd go, I just don't understand how Paul can't see this. He's such a dork when it comes to fill in the blank, you know, or whatever. And probably you, Samuel, same kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, for sure. And in there, what they would be saying is, I can't even relate to that. What the heck's wrong with him? You know, mm-hmm. whatever. And and so I, I'm saying I totally agree with what you're thinking and feeling. And I'm also saying, and I think that we find ourselves in the same trap or the same whatever. And it's yeah, it's just a hard thing. People, man, I I hate saying this. Actually, I used to love saying it, and now I'm trying to change. <laughs> but there's some truth in it. I mean, I know. I believe that God created people good, like he, he did, and, and we just blow it every way that we can, but we still have that potential for the good, and that's what God is calling us to. I believe all of that, but as a general rule, when I look at around at humanity in the world, in my lifetime, it sounds mean, but honestly, people suck. <laughs> They just do, and it's terrible, and I'm not excluding me. It's just, it's a hard thing, but as Christians, we are supposed to defy that in every way. We are supposed to be the light and the salt, the thing that people around the world look to and go, you know what? There is something better. There is something different, and God has given us this opportunity, and I think in general as a church, we've blown it, but you know what? I'm not going to give up. We're still trying. So, I don't, anything else, Samuel? No. Uh, All right. Let's keep going. This, this actually gets a little bit confusing, but we'll see what we can do with it. This is Matthew chapter 23, verses 8 through 12. It says this, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, 
and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Okay. Now, on the surface, you can look at this and you can walk away with, yeah, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, just just uh, don't, don't let your britches get a little too big. And, you know, you, you can get some plain meaning out of it. But we know it's in the context. He's just been talking to... You know, these talking about how they sit in Moses' seat and they do all this crazy stuff. So let's see what he's trying to say here. One of the last things that Jesus mentions above is that the scribes and Pharisees loved being called rabbi. Okay, so there's a real good connecting point. And here, obviously, Matthew's the only one who's telling the story here. He's using that as a segue, trying to make another point. And the point, I don't know, it seems to cause a lot of confusion. To better understand, we need to remember that Jesus just told the crowd to obey authority, even bad authority, at least as sort of the overriding general rule. And again, why did he tell us that? Because authority comes from God. Okay, so so what's Jesus's point here? He's telling us, okay, don't you desire to be called rabbi? And that is to say, don't desire it in the same way and for the same reasons that these scribes and Pharisees do. After all, there really is only one true teacher. And in this context, I'm going to say, I think Jesus is referring to God himself, the Father. Don't covet what is beyond you. Now, Is Jesus changing or canceling or forbidding people calling one another rabbi? Do you think he's doing that, Samuel? I don't believe so. No, he's not trying to lay down some sort of immutable law. He's just emphasizing that it's wrong to seek titles or positions especially as a way to be elevated above your fellow man. We need to stay grounded in our estimation of ourselves because we are all brothers, after all, before God. And no matter, no matter how awesome a teacher might actually be as a human here on the earth, I mean, there have been some, well, in the end, it doesn't really matter. The only true teacher is God. And we need to have a little bit of humility in the face of that. Now, in the same way, Jesus says that we shouldn't call each other father. Now, Samuel, I'm going to ask it again. Is Jesus actually changing or canceling or forbidding people calling their dad father? That would be weird. (laughs) Right. Of course he's not. And that makes, you know, the question that I asked about rabbi, which may not have seemed quite as clear, now it's becoming quite a bit more clear, right? He's not saying that. He's emphasizing that it can be equally wrong to improperly elevate others to a high position. 
like Father. So don't elevate yourself and don't elevate others improperly or unnecessarily. After all, and in a very similar way, we all really only have one Father. Who's that Father, Samuel? God the Father. Yeah, I think again, he's pointing to God the Father specifically. And we are all brothers with that one Father. See, we need to stay grounded in our estimation of ourselves. That was kind of what he was getting at with don't desire to be called rabbi for the wrong reasons. And we need to stay grounded in our estimation of others. We're all brothers before God. So you can see Jesus, he's just kind of bringing everything down to, hey, could could we just be real for a second? We're, we're all pretty much in the same boat. We should, we should understand that. And then he adds this final one, don't be called instructor. And I don't know about you, Samuel, does that not sound like just a repeat of teacher? Mm. Yeah, it does to me. I don't know. But it isn't. Other words that we could use here would be like a leader or guide or director or even we might go as far as to say a master. Now, it kind of helps me because I'm trying to distinguish between teacher and instructor. So it helps me to go with some of those stronger words, you know, uh, and it, the, the phrase would then read something like, neither be called master, for you have one master, the Christ. Okay, you know, I don't know that it's maybe good or right or fair for us to insert that word there, but it definitely helps me to to really make a good distinction between what he's talking about. And, and this it just highlights the point. Quit seeking to rule over other men. So then if you say it that way, then you can go, oh, yeah, okay. Even if we use the, the, the easier words like instructor or leader or guide, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm seeking to rule over other men. I, I shouldn't seek that, and definitely not for the wrong reasons, right? And it's that idea, again, of trying to elevate your own standing among men. And that's just not a good thing to do. And, and humanity historical, empirical proof would tell you that's what they try to do all the time, right? We need to quit doing that. And again, it's the same point. After all, there really is only one leader or guide or director or instructor or master. And who is that, Samuel, he actually tells us here? The Messiah. Yeah, yeah. It's actually the Christ this time, not the Father as much. Although, seriously, it all leads back to him anyway. So yeah, mm. they're all the same. I mean, we know we 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 sort of think of them in in the regard of the Trinity. We have no no difficulty with the idea of a Trinity, and so we think of them as one and all of that. So anyway, uh, now uh, the thing is, there's a there's a a great change to be seen in this, and in a way, this kind of represents, in a sense, an end of the houses of study. Now, in first century Judaism and in the, I would say, even the centuries preceding, they had these houses of study. And in this podcast, we've talked about probably the two most famous ones, the houses of Shammai and Hillel. There, there's now, I mean, the way that Jesus is presenting this, there's now only going to be one and, and one final house of study, and that is the house of Messiah. Okay, there there will be 
teachers and fathers and instructors, etc. But they are only ever going to be within the house of Messiah, if you could think of that way, as a study house. And again, Jesus is not saying, you know, you can't ever call someone a rabbi or a teacher or a father or an instructor. It's not that kind of legalistic thing. It's just understanding, hey, if I act in the role of a teacher, let's say, I'm only doing that in, you know, as if I was in a house of study like the house of Messiah, or as if I'm only here on Jesus's behalf. I'm trying to represent his name faithfully or something like that. That's really all he's getting at. And uh, what you might want to do is look at Paul's complaint against divisions in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I think that adds to our conversation here. But again, that's for you on the side. We're not going to go into that here. So I'm going to ask this one other way, because I think it's important that we get this point. Samuel, has Jesus erased all forms of authority and hierarchy? I don't believe he has. No, he has not. He just told everyone to obey the authority. Did he not? For sure. They sit in Moses' seat. Do what they say. He just told them that. Why? Because it comes from God. Their authority comes from God. Jesus is often called rabbi or master or Lord, etc. And he doesn't correct people. So why is he saying all of this stuff? It could lead people to believe that all authority and hierarchy has been reduced to this simple image of God's on top, and then there's all of us. But he's not. And verses 11 and 12 explain it, I think, to some degree. Do you want to be great? Do you somehow want to be an authority or high up in the hierarchy or whatever you want to call it? Is that what you want? Well, here, be the servant of all. You want to be exalted? Ah, here's the plan. Humble yourself among your fellow man. If you exalt yourself, like these scribes and Pharisees have done, well, you're going to get humbled. You don't want that. It's going to be uncomfortable at best. You ought to instead just humble yourself. Don't seek authority or status or elevated hierarchy. Now, these things may come in your life, And that's okay, because who's the author of that, Samuel? If you end up in some position of authority or high status or elevated hierarchy, how did that happen? God orchestrated it. All authority comes from God, right? It's okay if it happens, but don't you be the one seeking it. You need to humble yourself and elevate others, even those with less authority, lower status, a recessed hierarchy, whatever you want to call it. You need to live that way. Do life that way. That's the lesson here. And Samuel, is there something familiar about that? Sounds familiar. Yeah. Jesus has told this lesson before. He's taught this lesson before, but wow, what a very different context. What a very different way to say it. And it's just really good for us. Yeah, it is really good. Um, and one of the things that was maybe convicting for me or it made me stop and pause and having to 
connect the dots in my thinking um, because especially with um, Jesus saying neither be called instructors and how you were referencing how it's kind of the end end of the houses of study Mm. um, I don't think that Jesus is trying to say that all of the I guess generations of Jewish scholars and thinkers uh, wrestling with the Torah uh, leading up to the time of Jesus should be thrown away, forgotten about because we just yeah. have Jesus now. Because there's so much good in things that Shammai and Hillel said. Uh, I mean, yeah. we, we talked about, I think in a previous podcast, on how there was this issue with the house of Shammai not being willing to consider other forms of thinking and introspection on the things of God and humanity, but Hillel was, the house of Hillel was, and how the public was much more in favor of the house of Hillel because of their openness to actually entertain conversation and wrestling rather than saying, I'm right by default and you are wrong. I think Jesus is still encouraging that. He's just saying, go to those places, and then at the end of it, see if it is in line with the ultimate like authority uh, in terms of teaching instruction with you know the the one who lived it out in human flesh the messiah yeah um and then go from there to say whether you can add it to your tool belt or you have to cast it aside yeah and you know what you bring up a really good point it used to be that when let's say you had a rabbi somewhere and he was going to teach about a thing he would often refer to his own rabbi as a source of authority. And in fact, he wouldn't stop there. He would talk about his rabbi and his rabbi before him and his rabbi before him as sort of the chain of authority so people could go, wow, you know, this stuff must be pretty good, pretty right, because it's been passed down, you know, through these generations. And that was that was actually all a really, really good thing. What this is doing is kind of interrupting that chain of authority and saying, you know what? There's really only one new top here. You basically you can just say, yeah, I, I I'm teaching this, and I I refer to or, or uh, sort of uh, appeal to my authority uh, in the teaching of Messiah. There you go. Mm. There's the chain. So yeah, you, the way you said it was really good, and so yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Anything else? No, I'm just ready to see uh, whether this continues or there's a change in scene. Okay, well, big change in scene. And actually, this one's kind of fun. So let's do this. Let's see. This is in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, and parallels Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read from Mark. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, 
all she had to live on. Oh, all right. This is good stuff here. Rubber meets road, real life, right? That's all good. So Jesus, if I could say, being a good rabbi, Jesus sees another opportunity to teach through the world that's happening around him. So here they are. They're in the temple courts. They're near the treasury, which is in the court of women, the way that we understand it in that time. And people are dropping money into one of 13 money chests. Each chest was for a specific purpose. Some were for uh, paying the temple tax. Some were for purchasing bird offerings or maybe the free will offerings, things like that. And okay, some of those items, you had more than one chest that was for the same thing, but they all had a specific purpose. And remember, this is the week leading up to Passover. So the temple is busy with people. It's just all kinds of people from everywhere, all over the country, some even outside the country. And some have been saving and preparing and offering for months. I mean, they've been planning. I'm going to Jerusalem, taking my offering, right? Why? Because it's a command. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Samuel, why don't you read that for us? Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and, the fe- and at the Feast of Booths, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Okay. Now, you could also see a very similar version of this in Exodus chapter 23, verse 15. But the key that I want to pick up on here is right at the very end, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Now, whether you think it's right or true or not doesn't matter. This was understood within Judaism, within Israel. This meant that you need to bring an offering on these three festivals when everybody comes to Jerusalem, okay? So some people have been saving for months. Now, as it happened, some of those who were making offerings at this moment, well, they were rich. They had plenty. And so the offerings that they brought were large. They were impressive. Impressive. Most impressive. And I don't know. Samuel, the way the story is presented here, you get the sense that you could clearly see exactly what people were offering. Now, that doesn't fit with the way we do church in America. I mean, everybody kind of wants to hide that stuff, mm. uh, except I guess there are those few who kind of think they're showing off or whatever. But anybody could just sit and watch people dropping their offerings into these chests. It's, I don't know, kind of creepy to me, but it was good for this story because you could see then this poor widow. She shows up and she drops in two small copper coins. Now, in the text, they call it a penny. But just so we can kind of relate, Samuel, we have said, uh, we've talked about money in this day and age, and we talked about the denarius. And what did that represent as a general rule, average people? Uh, The amount that you make in a day. That's right. A denarius was a day's wage. This two copper coins, in total, was about one sixty-fourth of a denarius. So let's just pretend. If she only made that much in a day, she would have had to work 64 days just to equal what was the average daily wage. I mean, it's a really small amount. Hmm. One sixty-fourth. And remember, 
I mean, she could have been trying to save this up, prepare this, whatever, for months. This was all that she could bring. And so it helps us really understand, oh my gosh, only one sixty-fourth of a single day, single day's wage was all that she could bring. And Jesus sees this and he drops the lesson on him. He says that her penny is worth more than the other people's, and I'm just going to say, piles of gold. I don't know what they really brought, but, you know, let's just say it's a lot. So they had piles of gold. Her little penny was worth more than that. How does that make sense? Well, in the plain sense, this is, of course, ridiculous. Piles of gold are worth way more than a couple little pieces of copper, at least the way we value particular metals and whatever. But Jesus explains, her penny came at great cost. She lived daily in poverty, in lack, and yet she found a way to offer something to God. And, you know, what was, what was her motivation? Is it just reverence? Is it thankfulness? We don't know what really motivated her, but whatever it was, it was awesome. Now, I've presented it as if she has maybe saved up money because we know that that was a thing that people did. But, you know, it's just as possible that she didn't she didn't save up anything because she couldn't. She didn't have anything. It could have been instead that this was literally all that was in her possession at that moment. And and it wasn't like she'd saved it. She still needed it. This was for her to, I don't know, eat or do whatever, but maybe out of faith or trust or whatever it does, whatever it was, she threw it in anyway. She was making the most of her humble circumstance. So how did, uh, now on the other side, maybe we should go ahead and say this out loud. The rich, the rich offerers, on the other hand, see, it didn't really cost them anything. Now, I don't know. Anytime you you possess something and you give it away, if, if you think of it that way, it kind of feels like it's costing you something, but it didn't really. It doesn't appear that it was any real cost to them. They, they only gave out of their abundance, their leftovers. They didn't do without any food or clothing or shelter or any of that. They gave out of abundance. And so in that sense, it cost them nothing. They had no poverty. They had no lack. And they made no personal sacrifice at all. And so they made the least that they could out of their abundant circumstance. Now, here's the question. Is this a lesson about giving to your local church? Want to take a stab at that one, Samuel? <laughs> uh, I'm going to stretch and say no. Yeah. The answer is unequivocally no. Now, I know that there are people that are going to be upset that I said that, but there are a lot of reasons for it. First of all, you don't understand tithe or offering. You don't understand a whole bunch about your Old Testament if you think that there's some obligation given to your church. And, and at the same time... I'm, generally speaking, a fan of giving to your local church, okay? This lesson, though, to pull it forward and to try to make that explicit connection, it's just wrong. But at the same time, it's important that we understand, hey, this lesson, well, it's not irrelevant either, 
the whole concept of giving and generosity and all those kind of things, very, very important, and giving to your church is a part of that. All I'm saying is that this is not the actual point here. We can learn lessons about generosity over greed uh, toward both men and toward God, right? They're important lessons. But the scribes and Pharisees were just exposed as pursuing the opposite of humility. And so Jesus, he just gave a brief lesson on being humble and elevating others. So here's the thing. God is the source of all. You may do great and magnificent things for God, but they may come only from the abundance that God has given you. And it's from the skimpiest gift, from your most humble place, that he finds great value. So we must learn to appreciate the value of the cost of our offerings, as opposed to just the face, the face value of those offerings. See, we, we shouldn't avoid humility. We have to seek it. We've heard the lesson before when Jesus spoke of these little ones. Anybody remember that from the podcast? It's a recurring theme. We have to be willing to actually suffer some poverty, some lack, some personal sacrifice as a way of elevating others. That's part of what we do. And it's in that that God, you know, when we give to God out of our purposefully and and voluntarily experiencing some poverty and some lack, and, and our offering comes from that, the value of our offering increases just exponentially. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. It's a hard picture. But it is the picture of our Christian life, at least part of it. Yeah, totally. And we see that sacrifice shown in its fullness, like in the person of Jesus himself by the way that he sacrificed his, you could say, the fullness of his divinity or transcendence with uh, being in the eternal realm, yeah, uh, taking on the limitations and the constrictions of human life to live, to relate, and ultimately to succeed in the human life. So, yeah. like, we should see, like, the person who is saying this is coming from a place of relating because he himself had to sacrifice something in order to be in that spot, like teaching in that moment. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's so great, Sam. I mean, think about that. Let's just pull it in like the, the simplest kid terms ever. I'm God, and I came down and became human for you. Wow. That, that's an, a pretty incredible example of humbling oneself, Right. He's just calling us to the same thing. Good point, Samuel. Good way mm. to see that. Yeah. And I also wanted to just relate back this this ties so well to last week's uh, teaching of Jesus when he got asked what's the greatest commandment, and he added in the loving the Lord your God with all of your mind, including you know heart, soul, and strength. Like This is just another example of yeah. one's understanding and how that relates to 
how it results in your action. Like Jesus is getting at the heart. Like, are you, is your giving coming from a place that you see God as the provider and the giver of all things and you are wanting to give praise, give thankfulness for God being that, like, that role in your life or are you giving the scraps the leftovers because you know you got all your bills paid and you got everything spent for fun that you wanted and you got some leftover and you know here's here's whatever's left to to throw in for your local church so it's it all ultimately bottlenecks to mind to understanding uh, how, how you respond yeah. Oh, that's so good. The two greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor, right? What does that look like? It looks like this. And 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 we can even go back and say, well, how do we man, how do we know how to do this properly? All the details back there in the Torah. There mm-hmm. you go. Yeah. Oh, good Samuel. Anything else? Cuz I mean, you're on a roll. I uh, I'm going to I'm going to quit while I'm ahead. <laughs> wisdom that I wish I had. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Well, all right. This is, I mean, these were good things. And I know I mentioned that we were going to be doing the seven woes. And just like, you know, we've become experts. Let's just admit it. We're breaking right here and we'll do that next week. (laughs) Yeah, we're saying, whoa, Nelly on the woes. That's right. That's right. W-H-O-A on the W-O-E. <laughs> needs to be in a rap song. <laughs> it could be. It'd be a bad one, but it could be. <laughs> All right, let's be done. Okie dokie. <gasps> Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to write us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.